Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and Guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Good afternoon. This is Perry Marshall, and I am here with Joel Salatin. And I interviewed Joel about six months ago. And uh, we talked about the future of the food industry. And uh, just uh, maybe a month later, I wrote a blog post called 10 Predictions for 2020 to 2029. And I said that uh, higher education was going to crash and burn and a bunch of different things. And one of the things I said, that the Uberization of food is the next is one of the big things that's going to happen in the next decade. I said, remember when most American beers taste like urine, the surge of microbrews changed all that. Same is going to happen to food. I interviewed alternate farming expert Joel Salatin and discovered that stifling U.S. food regulations are based on 1906 technology. If you own a cow or goat, you can go to jail for selling milk to your next door neighbor. Uh, just as Uber and Airbnb were illegally in most cities. The Uberization of food will spawn new industries and artisanal careers. Watch for the resurgence of local craftsmanship and agriculture. Farming is cool once again. Then COVID hit. And uh, I was already booked to talk to Joel several months later because I just felt like I want more of this. Well, now we got COVID and like, oh, I got to talk to this guy because I bet he can tell me all kinds of interesting things that are going on in the food business because of COVID. So, dude, like wide open door, walk through it. Uh, tell me, <laughs> tell me what you're seeing. Well, uh, boy, that's a pretty wide open question. Maybe the best thing to do would be to start with the empty store shelves that we saw about, you know, six or seven weeks ago that literally scared everybody to death. And that was initially not really a food shortage. It was a diversion of the two primary tracks of food in the country. So there's a retail track that goes to, you know, retail people. And then there's a wholesale track that goes to institutions and restaurants and and things like that. Trust me, when the University of Virginia buys Cheerios for the dining services, they don't get them in a little box. (laughs) They get them in a 55-gallon drum, right? Okay. Okay. You've got these two very separate tracks of food. And when all the restaurants suddenly shut down, the packaging and that track, you know, it was like a narrow gauge and a wide gauge railroad. You you couldn't just shift engines and, and, and train cars. You couldn't shift packaging on the tracks. And so, I mean, we saw it right here on our farm. We actually, for the first time, I think maybe ever, we ran out of ground beef for retail for three days. We were actually out. Now, we had 5,000 pounds of five-pound packages for restaurants in the freezer, but retail didn't want five-pound packages. They wanted one-pound packages. So Mm. that's a perfect example of these two tracks. And so it's taken a little bit for the the redirection of all that institutional wholesale bulk packaging 
to get either repackaged, cooked and put in a can, you know, something to ease it off. So that's the one thing. The second thing that happened, of course, was then the shutting down of the big processing plants. You know, Smithfield and Tyson and, and Purdue and all these big outfits, they started closing because they had coronavirus problems in their workforce. So they had, they had not only people were sick, but then they had employees that were scared to come into work because they might get sick. Now, first of all, we've got to understand that right now in the United States, about the only place in the country where thousands of people assemble every day, shoulder to shoulder, in cold, dark, damp conditions, is these mega processing facilities. Yeah. And the workforce, by and large, the workforce for these things, and I am not xenophobic. I mean, I grew up until I was four years old in Venezuela. So I am not xenophobic, but I can tell you that 90% of the people who work in these plants are foreign, foreign people. They've come here from Somalia and from Kenya and from Mogadishu, whatever. Uh, they've come from all over the world and they're living in very crowded conditions, trying to save a nickel, eating poorly so they can bring mom and dad and brother and sister and families over to the land of opportunity of America. And so you've got this, this stress of, of foreign living, foreign, foreign, it is stressful, you know, when you're in a, in a new country. And that assimilation, the crowding in the home, the poor uh, dietary and the dietary shift from your native country, and you're crowded every day with thousands of people in a cold, dark, damp place. So it was a perfect vector. It was a perfect, you know, storm uh, setup. And so when the processing went down, when these big plants went down, there was this big aha moment in the country when people realized, A, half of America's uh, meat processing capacity is owned by foreign interests, either the Chinese or the Brazilians. I mean, that's amazing. Half of American meat processing is owned by foreign ent entities. And number two, that, you know, 80, well, say 90% of the U.S. meat, poultry, and dairy is handled by about 150 mega plants of three or 4,000 employees. And so suddenly this aha light bulb went off in people and said, whoa, that is a lot of centralization, amalgamation, and a, a lot of power assembled in one spot. And so when that happened, then the farmers, the bottleneck was the farmers had the, had the pigs or the chickens or whatever, but they couldn't get them processed because the processing plant shut down. So then they started euthanizing the animals and dumping milk, not because there wasn't a market for it and not because they couldn't produce it, but because they couldn't get it processed in this little handful of mega processing facilities. So I know we're going to go here in our discussion, but I just, I can't help but say, so the obvious point of this is, well, maybe we better have a few more plants scattered around and have them a little smaller and community oriented and decentralized and democratized so that we don't have all that fragility in one spot. So is that actually happening or was it just like, Oh, well, we kind of solved that. Off we go. Is it actually happening? You know, they always say that a crisis doesn't make a trend. It simply either accelerates it or makes a trend more obvious. And so the truth is that these mega processing plants have built in structural vulnerability due to sheer scale and size. I mean, a lot of people don't realize 
that a hamburger at a fast food restaurant comes from as many as 600, 600 animals, pieces of 600 animals are in one hamburger. That is an accident waiting to happen. You know, when you get a hamburger from me, from my farm, that hamburger comes from one animal. You know, um, how much of this is on? Yes, they are struggling right now. These, these mega plants are struggling to stay open. They're struggling to make their workers feel safe. Yeah, they're very much struggling now. And we're going to see the food prices. I mean, right now, um, I don't know if this was in your prediction, but for sure, everybody is predicting food prices to go up substantially, like, I don't know, 20%. Uh, pretty substantial over the next, you know, four to five months as the processors try to absorb, you know, new safety measures, new rules, new regulations, you know, uh, new infrastructure in-house to do this. But look, the fact is that the recalls, the pathogens, the foodborne bacteria, all the things that this really um, put a light on, those have been ongoing problems in the industry for a long, long time. This is nothing new. It's just that this brought it, I think, you know, brought it to everybody's awareness and forefront. It's endemic. It's embedded. It's a vulnerability of the system. And the coronavirus simply brought it to the top of the, you know, it it got it floating where you can see it. So early after COVID hit, I was talking to a lady I knew, and she was on some committee to try to get telemedicine approved in the state of Illinois. And everybody thought it would like take two or three years. And because of COVID, it took like 24 hours. And I think the, <laughs> the, the governor signed some law. It's like, okay, all the medical providers, all the insurance companies, you got to accept telemedicine. You got to be able to do a doctor appointment on zoom. I don't care what you think. Like, oh, okay. And like, and then all of a sudden, uh-huh. Blue Cross, Illinois, like, okay, we cover that now. And it was like, yay. Yeah. So probably the next thing that crossed my mind was, or at least as soon as I heard about the food shortages, like, well, that ought to happen in food too. I would think that all these 1906 regulations, somebody would start saying, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you got a goat, sure. Oh, you got a cow, sure. Are you seeing any of that? Well, actually, uh, there's an interesting thread on this. And so the answer is a little bit yes. So Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky introduced um, like five years ago what's known as the PRIME Act. And um, PRIME is an acronym. And uh, what it does in Congress and what it does is it gives the state a right to allow custom processed animals to be sold by the piece. That's never been allowed before. You could only buy a quarter or a half. And so it was a big volume to, if you had it custom. And then the packages came back, you know, stamped not for sale. And within, after COVID hit, within two weeks, this, this bill that he's had that, that has literally languished for five years, suddenly he had 18 co-signers on it. Because the fact is, we have summarily, over the last 20 years, we've summarily annihilated in this country have annihilated the community abattoir, the little, the little butcher shop, the little slaughterhouse. I mean, there's a lot of little butcher shops that cut meat, but I'm talking about actually slaughtering the, killing the animal. You gotta, you gotta get the animal dead before you can cut it up. And so our county, our county 50 years, uh, what, 60 years ago, you know, we had like uh, 10 of these. 
uh, you know, communities had these scattered around. They were little mom and pop organizations, some family that had a knack for cutting meat. And, and, uh, and so they would set up a little bit, set up shop and, and they do it, you know, all that, that locality, you know, that all that, well, the regulations have gradually run them out of business. Uh, that's partly it. It's also partly due to the fact that the American consumer quit buying bulk meat. They quit buying quarters and halves. They don't even have a freezer anymore, and they can't even put their hands on $400. So <laughs> the perfect storm was that these little community abattoirs went out of business. And so the PRIME Act that, that uh, Congressman Thomas Massey has put in, the PRIME Act would give the state the freedom to allow these little community abattoirs to sell meat locally, not across the state lines, but intrastate, if a state wanted to. And he tells me that he's had calls all over the country from people who did go out of business, but the little, the little building is still sitting there, you know, uh, and they've told him the day this passes, they're ready to reopen the doors and start processing meat again. So this is not, this is not a production problem. It's not an actual farming problem. It is a processing slash regulation problem that doesn't allow market access for a wider range of choice. I'm a little puzzled that this would even be laws at the federal level. Like I would think that how you process food would be a state thing. So are there a bunch of federal laws about this too? Like that just seems weird to me. Yeah, well, the, the federal, the Food Safety Inspection Service, FSIS, uh, Food Safety Inspection, which was developed by, you know, Theodore Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt in, in 1907, after Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. The FSIS is a federal agency, and it absolutely oversees from the federal level all uh, meat and poultry processing regulations. Uh, mm. To the extent that, I mean, it has gradually gained more, more and more control. When it was instituted, every state had, you know, some sort of a, a kind of a program or shortly thereafter. And what's happened over the last, you know, 20 years is many states, about half the states actually, have even given up their state program and just said, you know, we're not going to fool with this. We're just going to let the feds do it. And so states mm. don't, don't even have an agency now. Even uh, wow. does this. It's been completely given over to the federal. But I agree with you. I agree with you. If this were a state issue, then the change, the point is the change would not be so hard. You know, it's a lot harder to change things at the federal level than the state level. No doubt. Okay, so are you seeing any other trends other than just meatpacking? Like because of COVID, are there other trends that have suddenly accelerated? Because I think you're right. Uh, COVID accelerated everything. It accelerated the digital, uh, accelerated going virtual, accelerated going more digital, accelerated Zoom. So what else is going on? <laughs> yes, there are definitely several trends developing. One certainly is a gardening. Uh, if you try to buy garden seeds right now, you'll find that most of the Seed companies are literally sold out. Wow. Ditto for chicks, for backyard chickens. We have sold more <laughs> little twosies and threesies for backyard chickens, for, okay. you know, just for, for eggs, for people to, to have eggs for the, in their own backyard. So the people who make you know, little backyard coops, uh, little kits you know, that you can buy, people that, 
that sell, you know, a few chickens, everything is sold out. Freezers, freezers are sold out. In our area, in our region of Virginia, uh, you cannot buy a freezer anywhere now until sometime in late August. So uh, seeds, gardening, all gardening supplies, gardening tools, gardening uh, everything. The next big one is going to be canning supplies. So if, if you're <laughs> going to can, you better buy, get your canning lids now because mm. there's going to be a, a shortage of canning lids and jars and things like that. Storage, all of the, um, goodness, a, a packaging uh, for any kind of home storage of anything, you know, a home dehydrate, anything having to do, uh, look, <laughs> anything that a prepper, a prepper would get, okay, yeah. you know, for their kitchen, for do-it-yourself do dehydration, sprouting kits, you know, the little sprouting kits, all of that kind of do-it-yourself. This has been the biggest, what, injection of activity and interest in the kind of culinary do-it-yourself movement that I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, it's even way, it's way, even way bigger than Y2K. I mean, we, we, had a, we had a shot of it at Y2K, but this is a lot bigger because it's lasting longer. It's, it's, I mean, we didn't have any empty store shelves at Y2K. Y2K ended up being a hysteria that in a moment of time dissipated. COVID, right. it's a longer term deal, so it, it seems more endemic. It's like it's gonna have a longer tail going to have a longer tail out there. But I mean, we're seeing, for example, on our farm, uh, I mean, we direct market. So one of the big, huge things we've seen is just the demand for shipping. Uh, people don't want to go out of their house. They don't want to go to the supermarket. So they're ordering online. So our, our shipping for, with our food has just gone through the roof. It's, I mean, we, we have to ration. We, we don't have enough to go around. Uh, I mean, we've actually irritated people, you know, because we always had it and then suddenly we don't. And I can tell you, farmers around the country, that's happening around the country. People have come into our farm and saying, I'm never going to go back to the supermarket. There's been a huge breakdown of trust in the ability of the industrial food chain to be there for them. And so this is stimulating, this is stimulating questions. There are all sorts of aha moments uh, coming up here. And so this seeking alternatives, seeking an alternative for, for whether it's alternatives of provenance, alternatives of production, alternatives of storage, all of these things are, you know, confluing as people start to jump off the ship. The fact is that the, the mega processing facilities are aircraft carriers and farms like us and the little slaughterhouse that we use, little community abattoir of 20 people, is, we're a speedboat. And in times of crisis, it's a lot easier to adjust a speedboat than an aircraft carrier. Okay, so speaking specifically to the, tr the breaking down of trust, because that is a huge theme in the world, obviously. So can you project forward a year or two? Because... COVID, as far as I can possibly tell, even if it's mostly under control in some, you know, in the next few months, even if that were to be the case, there's still going to be lingering, like, I don't see it completely going away, right? So there's always going to be some people that are really nervous, and that's going to put pressure on right. legislation. So if you could fast forward, 
six months, a year, two years, what are some dominoes that you see tipping over, especially legally, that would like all of a sudden there is an Airbnb of food or an Uberization of food? Just can we could all see that maybe generally, but sure. what are some specific? Yeah. So one of the things that will likely proliferate is any kind of exemption for direct sales. So, so when a farmer sells directly to a customer, I'm not talking about selling to Walmart or yeah. exporting to Thailand. I'm talking yeah. about uh, selling directly to a customer. And we already saw this trend beginning uh, with what we call the cottage, cottage food laws. There are now several states that have what are called cottage food laws that either define by sale type or by volume. If you want to bake a cake in your kitchen and sell it to a neighbor, you can do so. So um, now you can't bake that cake and take it down to Walmart, put it on their shelf. But if there's a direct relationship, that kind of commerce, I think, could absolutely be facilitated because that's the most secure commerce. It's neighbor to neighbor interaction. So anything that allows neighbor to neighbor interaction should accelerate. So these, these, cottage, these cottage food laws are absolutely proliferating. In Virginia now, we have that anybody can bake and sell it to an end user, you know, to, directly to a customer uh, without inspection, uh, but, you know, baked items. Uh, we've got a pickle bill. You can, make, you can sell $3,000 worth of pickle from your home kitchen without any inspection. So I can imagine that to proliferate. Maybe we'll have, uh, well, like, like in, um, in Oregon, in Oregon, you can sell milk from three cows, not 100, but three cows. If you have three cows, you can sell their milk direct to people without any inspection. It's those kinds of recognition that at, at low scale and neighborhood commerce, the transparent, the inherent transparency of in those transactions becomes its own regulator. It becomes its own auditor. It's a little bit like in Virginia, for example, you can keep three children in your home as a daycare without any licensing. Why? If all you keep is three children in your home, chances are you're going to be very involved with the parents. The parents are going to be involved with you. They're going to be coming, looking in your house, you know, no that sort of thing. So yeah. there is absolutely not only a legal precedent, but reasonable precedent for appreciating that if you come to my farm and you buy a chicken from me, that is a different transaction than when you go to Walmart and buy a chicken from a from who knows where, you know, fed who knows what and grown by who knows who. It's a very different transaction. And so the Uberization, and some business people are using the term the atomization. In other words, mm. the democratization, the atomization as assembling and as the retail, the physical, as the physical retail interface becomes more and more hampered either by regulation or by social fears. It's going to make it more and more, there's going to be more and more push to make it easier to ship, you know, to ship this stuff uh, in on FedEx or UPS or whatever, and more pressure to be able to do neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor transactions. That that's going to represent the atomization and the democratization of the food system. I would then predict that, uh, from what you're saying, that any kind of book course, training, resource, 
that helps people figure out how to make money in farming or food production on a small scale. Like any cottage industry education, I would expect that those book sales are going up, those online courses are going up, those product sales, and that that would be a very fast-growing business, at least right now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Amy Fuel, uh, who uh, founds and operates the Homesteaders of America conference, uh, it's a national conference held here in Virginia every fall. After COVID hit, in one day, in one day, they had 10,000 new signups to their website about do-it-yourself homesteading. So anything <laughs> regarding, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible, you know. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. And so anything regarding self-sufficiency, do-it-yourselfing, including how to find good food, how, how do you find authentic food and secure food, I mean, you know, I've just written this uh, new book. It's just been out for less than a month now, Beyond Labels. And it's all about a continuum uh, toward, toward and procuring authentic food, integrity food, because you don't want to go to the doctor. You don't want to go to the hospital. You don't want to. So for the first time in my lifetime, in common conversation, I'm hearing people talking about how do I build an immune system? How do I build my immune system? That's a wonderful conversation. And realizing, wow, if you wait for the government to take care of you or the pharmaceutical company to take care of you or Tyson's or, or IBP, you know, whatever, if you wait for them to take care of you, you're probably going to wait too long. And so you may as well get started now, you know, growing some herbs, doing some self-help health stuff and food stuff and growing stuff and just Essentially, what this COVID thing is, it has forced us, it has forced us into home centricity. And we have not been a home centric culture for a long time. We have essentially viewed our homes as pit stops between everything that's important in life, as opposed to a germination tray that makes us capable of doing everything that's important in life. You know, a pit stop rather than a launch pad. And, and so what this has done is it slowed us down, brought us home, and people are uh, having these new conversations now about home centricity, do-it-yourselfism. I mean, Lowe's, Lowe's and Home Depot. I mean, you'd think they're having conferences every day. Those places are exploding with customers doing their little you know, raised bed and I'm going to, I'll put this little addition on and I'm going to fix that old, you know, carpet in the back room and blah, 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 yes. blah, blah. I mean, yes. th that whole, yes. that whole self-help, self-support thing, uh, self-culinary, self-kitchen uh, is, is, yeah, it's exploding. It's exploding. Joel, this has been fantastic. I thought this was probably going to be really interesting and I was not disappointed, but tell them about your book and tell people where do I get more Joel Salad? <laughs> well, uh, the book Beyond Labels, it's a great book. It was, in fact, right now today, it's number one on Amazon's nutrition section. So uh, it's selling very well. I co-authored it with Dr. Sina McCullough, who is a PhD, um, uh, you know, a bionutritionist, who on the standard American diet almost died with an autoimmune disease. She was planning her funeral and then, you know, uh, finally awakened to her own responsibility for her health. And she's now a vibrant, you know, happy energizer bunny. 
and did it over all sorts of, you know, from, from spiritual to physical to, you know, lifestyle changes. And so the book essentially takes people on a continuum, starting them from the, uh, gas, from the gas station food counter all the way to their own home garden or their, you know, patio, uh, you know, pot garden uh, uh, in pots. Well, I mean, it could be a pot garden too, but <laughs> I don't care what you grow in the pots. The point is that it takes people on a continuum. And so it's a conversation between Cena with Dr. McCullough and myself as if you're sitting in an audience and it's like a play and we're just conversing and uh, there's uh, each chapter is called a, um, a practical bite. And so it's things that people can do on a continuum as they move to a better place in their food and lifestyle uh, and, and healthy, healthy living. You can find out more about me at our uh, farm website, polyfacefarms.com. All you got to do is type in about P O L Y and it'll probably come up. Uh, Polyface Farms, and it's got everything from my, you know, my speaking schedule to things about the farm to how you can order food, you know, all those things. Well, Joel, fantastic. Thank you very much, Joel Souten. And um, I really, I just think it's wonderful. You have been working for a very long time on an idea whose time has come. So congratulations. Yes, thank you. You. Yeah, I feel like I'm on on the crest of a tsunami here, and I just hope I can stand stay. I just hope I can stay on the surfboard. <laughs> All right. Well, here's to stand on the surfboard. Good to see you, Joel. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.